0: Welcome to Fort George Island and the Kingsley Plantation. Please take a moment to listen to this brief introduction before you begin your exploration of the plantation. You're listening to an audio-described tour that may be helpful for visitors who are blind or have low vision. The tour lasts approximately 90 minutes and covers about three-quarters of a mile. Your tour will take you along the shore of the Fort George River, around the Kingsley Plantation House, into several indoor areas including the kitchen house and stable, to the interpretive garden, and finally, to the remains of the slave quarters. If you haven't already done so, please hang the audio player around your neck with the screen facing outward. If you move your fingers along the front of the player, you will feel a triangle at the top center of the face. If this arrow is pointing upwards with the screen facing away from you, then the player is in the correct orientation. On the left side of the player near the bottom are two round buttons for adjusting the volume. The top button lowers the volume, the bottom button raises the volume. This self-guided tour is designed to trigger automatically as you follow the path of the tour. Unless otherwise prompted, you won't need to touch the screen. The narrator will provide directions at each stop. At various points along the way, you'll have the option to explore certain topics in more depth. When this optional content is available, your player will vibrate and a bell will ring, like this. When that happens, you can touch the upper right corner of the screen for additional instructions. Please remember all references to positions on the screen assume the device is hanging around your neck with the screen facing outward. If you choose not to explore this additional content, you can just ignore the alert and proceed to the next stop, where your tour will resume automatically. As you tour the plantation, please feel free to ask for assistance. If you have any questions, or if you are not certain that your device is operating correctly, ask a park ranger. Someone is always available at the information desk where you received your audio tour player. Please let us know how we can make your visit as comfortable as possible. Your tour begins at the base of the ramp where you entered the gift shop. Please proceed outside, and note the recycled rubber path as you step off the ramp. Once there, tap the screen at the bottom to begin your tour.
1: Welcome to Fort George Island and the Kingsley Plantation. As you look around today in the peaceful setting of a national park, something vital
2: to its history is missing. The people who lived and died here. My husband is from the Susu tribe in the west, and I was born near the Pongo River in Guinea. They left traces of their existence buildings
1: where they lived and worked, letters and diaries they wrote, documents they signed. But others have been lost, their voices silenced by enslavement.
3: Sometimes they do not understand. They want to know why.
1: Our challenge is to rediscover those lost voices and to listen to what they teach us about our past and our future.
4: I will defend what is mine in my own way.
1: Much of what you'll discover here is challenging. It goes against what we think we know of our history. Yet we honor those who lived before us by remembering the past as accurately as the records will allow.
5: A runaway has stolen property just as if he killed the master's hogs.
1: This tour focuses on the people who lived here during a specific time, from 1814 through 1838, when Fort George Island was owned by Zephaniah Kingsley.
4: I keep the papers in my pocket. All the time, those papers stay in my pocket.
1: During your visit, I encourage you to set aside what you think you know and make room for what you discover. In the end, our capacity for dignity, as well as our justifications for slavery, may surprise or even amaze. I won't think like that. I
6: think that maybe she's alive somewhere.
1: Let's begin your visit today where so many did before, at the water. On the way, imagine for a moment, it's the early 1800s and the weather is much like it is today. My mother used to say,
7: until the lion has his own storyteller, the hunter will always have the best part.
0: From where you're standing, facing away from the ramp, head over to the river's edge by moving off the rubber path to your left about 100 feet, and then stroll to your right about 75 feet toward the benches and tall palm trees in front of the house. The palm trees tower almost two stories high, their narrow green leaves spreading like canopies.
1: This small stretch of land has been populated for thousands of years, in large part due to the location. Stop! when you're directly in front of the house and turn to face the Fort George River on the left. Now, off to your right, the Atlantic Ocean is close by. The temperate climate and abundant rainfall provided a year-round ability to grow crops and harvest nature's bounty. In short, this is a perfect place for a commercial agricultural enterprise, a plantation. If this were your plantation... This would be your front yard, the river, your driveway. For a moment, imagine this is your plantation. Smell the air, feel the breeze. The double row of palm trees behind you that lead from the front porch of the house ended at your private dock. Friends and relatives would disembark here, or you and your family would board ships to take you away for business or pleasure. From the front porch or the widow's walk on the roof, you could watch for new arrivals or plan your next journey. Look around you. This part of your plantation is the land of the free. From that same widow's walk, high above the ground, you could turn and look over the rest of the holdings, your land and buildings, your fields of cotton and indigo, and your slaves. However, if you were the master of Kingsley Plantation, You could be Zephaniah Kingsley, a white former slave trader and businessman. Or you could be its mistress, Anna Kingsley, an African slave of Zephaniah's, then his emancipated wife, and ultimately a plantation and slave owner in her own right. We often find ourselves at odds with what we think we know about our history and what we actually discover to be true. The master and mistress of this plantation were a white man and a black woman. Years before Zephaniah bought this property, he purchased 13-year-old Anna Madjajin Jai. Soon thereafter, in Kingsley's own words, they were married, according to the customs of a foreign land, and for the next four decades in all respects, he honored her as his wife. In an interview when he was in his 70s, Kingsley described her as follows.
8: She was a fine, tall figure, black as jet, but very handsome. She was very capable and could carry on all the affairs of the plantation in my absence, as well as I could myself. She was affectionate and faithful, and I could trust her.
1: Five years after he purchased Anna in Cuba, Zephaniah emancipated her, and from that point forward, she was no longer his property. In 1814, together with their three children, They sailed up this very river to take possession of their new plantation. Three hundred yards farther around the bend to your right was the loading dock. There ships would be loaded with bales of fine sea-island cotton, indigo, and other goods. Supplies would be delivered, including slaves, men, women, and children. Some brought from Africa, some purchased from other slaveholders, and some simply moved here from the Kingsley's other farms or plantations. With that in mind, turn towards the house and imagine this particular plantation.
0: Kingsley's home is made of horizontal wood boards, painted white, and consists of a long main floor with a second story perched at center between side rooms on the first level at left and right. Windows with black shutters are spaced evenly throughout the structure. The roof has wood-shake shingles. The deep front porch stretches almost 40 feet across between the two side rooms. Seven steps lead to it at its center. The widow's walk caps the home's roof. It is a rectangular area, 6 feet by 10 feet, with a fence of white vertical posts around its perimeter. If you'd like to pause here, several benches facing the river are located in this area for your convenience. The story continues at the front porch of the house, approximately 85 feet ahead. Remember, this is the indication that optional content is available. Please touch the upper right corner of the screen to access this material.
1: This home, like everything else built on the property before the end of the Civil War, was built by slave labor. The enduring foundation and fine craftsmanship is a testament to the skill and talent of these men. From the coquina basement to the finely turned columns, the large windows and wide porches, this house represents the master's power and wealth. Wealth that was not possible without enslaved men, women, and children. Inside this home, people ate food prepared by slaves off of fine china plates. They slept on soft linen laundered by people who slept on pallets. Zephaniah Kingsley was very aware of this fact of life. In an 1829 treatise promoting his views of slavery, he wrote,
8: It is certainly humiliating for a proud master to reflect that he depends on his slave even for the bread he eats.
1: Yet it was Kingsley's views, for better and for worse, that prevailed here on Fort George Island. On the one hand, his views were paternalistic. He believed that every owner owed his slave affection or respect as if he or she were a member of his own family. On the other hand, he believed that slaves were property whose primary purpose was to create wealth for their rightful owner. And it was under these contrasting views that hundreds of men, women and children lived and died.
8: The best we can do in this world is to balance evils judiciously.
1: Zephaniah Kingsley made that statement in an interview. He didn't specify which evils he meant, but at the time, he was defending the fact that he didn't free all of his slaves when he moved his family to Haiti, adding,
8: To do good in the world, we must have money.
1: To understand slavery at Kingsley Plantation, it helps to understand the beliefs, culture, and politics of that particular time and place.
0: The house is open to visitors only during guided tour programs. The story continues around the back of the house, near the low stone well. Facing the house, move to your left. As you round the building, move to your right and proceed along the side of the house and past it, veering slightly to your left. The well is located about 120 feet ahead.
1: As you continue around to the back of the house, picture the hustle and bustle of a working plantation. To your left, the loading docks. In front of you, the stable is abuzz with activity. Head toward the low stone well. When you get there, notice the low trough where the family's horses would snort and stomp while they quenched their thirst. In fact, this well provided water to everyone, enslaved and free. All day. Dark skinned men and women crisscrossed this open field completing their tasks. For a moment, try to picture their faces and imagine their day to day existence.
0: The round well, now covered for safety, has a trough shaped like a rectangle. As you face the well, with the house behind you and to your left, the trough extends to the right from the well. Feel free to trace its shape and stone texture with your hands.
1: It's important to know that when the Kingsley family moved here, the ground under your feet was Spanish, not American soil. Under Spanish colonial rule, the basic concept of slavery, that one person had the legal right to own and control another, was true. But there was a key difference in the Spanish system. One reflected in Zephaniah Kingsley's words and action that slaves were considered human beings and not merely property. The Spanish system was based on three tiers, or castes, slaves, free people of color, and whites. More importantly, neither the Spanish nor Kingsley viewed enslavement as a permanent condition based on race. In his treatise, Kingsley described his view of the slave system like this.
8: The idea of slavery, when associated with cruelty and injustice, is revolting to every philanthropic mind— But when that idea is associated with justice and benevolence, slavery, commonly so-called, easily amalgamates with the ordinary conditions of life.
1: For Kingsley, the ordinary conditions of life were a society separated by class, and by class he meant status and wealth. Think about these same enslaved people crossing this clearing Drinking from this well, doing the same thing day after day while the world changed around them. In
9: 1821,
1: Florida became a United States territory and the laws quickly changed to a two caste, race based system that Kingsley despised. His dislike wasn't based on any belief that slavery was immoral, but rather that the two caste system would ultimately lead to rebellion. As law after law was passed, stripping his black family of legal protections and inheritance rights, Kingsley eventually moved his family to Haiti, the only free black republic in the world at the time. Kingsley's business interests kept him away for extended periods. It was left to his family, perhaps none more so than his wife, to enforce his worldview. However, it wasn't just the Kingsley's concept of slavery that goes against our modern understanding. Their family dynamic challenges our stereotypes as well. Now, move towards the two-story kitchen house, located directly behind the main house.
0: If you are facing the well, the kitchen house is behind you, about 100 feet away. Stop just outside of the building. The kitchen house is a two-story wood frame structure painted white. There are two doors, one on either side of the exterior central staircase, which leads to the second floor. The kitchen building is linked to the rear of the main house by a covered walkway.
1: When most people think about plantation life, they think of the antebellum South, where people were separated by skin color. But life on the Kingsley Plantation was very, very different. First, there was Kingsley's openly mixed-raced family. The unassuming building in front of you was the kitchen house of Kingsley Plantation. It was also Anna Kingsley's home for more than two decades. By the time Kingsley purchased Fort George Island, he had already freed Anna and their children, George, Martha, and Mary. Their fourth son, John Maxwell, was born free here on the island. Anna owned her own land and slaves and actively participated in the management of the plantation. Second, Zephaniah and Anna practiced polygamy. Zephaniah had four wives, all of whom lived on the island at one time or another. Anna was the first. This may seem odd by today's standards, but it wasn't an uncommon arrangement at that time. Anna was from the Wolof culture, where polygamy was the norm. The husband lived in his own house, and each wife had a separate residence close by. As the first, and therefore, primary wife, Anna had an additional position of authority on the plantation. The other wives were not considered rivals, but rather sisters. For a moment, think about the diverse Kingsley family as they lived on the property. And keep in mind that it wasn't just Zephaniah's polygamous mixed-race family that lived here, but many other white family members as well, including his sisters, in-laws, and nephews. In this yard, the four mulatto children of Anna and Zephaniah played with their white cousins. The children of at least two of Zephaniah's other wives, all Negro, all enslaved and then later freed, added to the various hues. The children were looked after by other enslaved Africans, as well as Anna's sister-wives. All of the Kingsley children, including Zephaniah's nephews, were educated here. The boys were trained to manage the properties. Tutors and lessons were part of daily life. So far, we've focused mainly on the free men and women of Kingsley Plantation, the people protected by the wealth and strength of personality of its master. But for the rest of our story, we'll explore the world of those who were held in bondage. People whose skin color and lack of wealth kept their voices silent for almost two centuries.
0: Next, we'll visit Anna Kingsley's parlor. Move forward another 20 feet. Please note the small step up to a concrete porch. Move to the right of the outdoor stairway and enter through the doorway there. The parlor room is a rectangular 22 feet long and 12 feet wide. The 8-foot ceiling has dark wooden beams. There is a fireplace and mantel to the left. To the right, an exhibit panel is titled, "Scarred: A Most Horrible Scene. At the bottom of the panel is a cutaway drawing of the below-deck interior of a slave ship. Slaves are positioned lying face-up and packed next to each other like piles of lumber. Above that drawing is a sketch in full color showing an African woman being suspended by a rope around one ankle. Standing next to her and looking straight out of the frame is a grinning white man with several whips or flails at his feet. The panel reads,
9: Scarred by the horror of being kidnapped from their homes, thrust into pens and shipped from Africa, prodded on the auction block and subjected to the whim of their owners, the experience of these Africans in the New World was that of slavery. Millions of captive Africans died before reaching the Americas. Those that did survive continued to face cruelty and assaults upon their dignity.
0: Further into the room, on the right, is an exhibit panel labeled Shackled. The panel features a drawing of a white man carrying a black baby and directing two young black children away from a black woman on the brick floor, her arms outstretched. She is held back by a white man. At the base of the panel, a drawing depicts three black men, their feet held with stocks, two wooden beams locked together with holes that hold the limbs of the enslaved. The panel states
9: ultimate loss of freedom any day at any time for any reason at all slaves could be punished these stocks were found at kingsley plantation
0: below this panel is a glass exhibit case four feet high and six feet long which contains an actual set of stocks found on the plantation they consist of two five feet long rough hewn wood beams bound together on one end by bolts that function as a hinge with the two beams pressed together Six holes are used to tightly bind the ankles of three slaves.
1: This room was the front parlor of a free black woman. Here, Mam Anna managed the household affairs of Fort George Island and would perhaps consult with overseers and managers, one of whom was Anna and Zephaniah's son, George. Also in this room, Anna gave instructions to her own slaves, many of whom were children. On occasion, she entertained guests as well, including her sister-wives who sat with her in this room, talking about their children and their husband. Yet even as a wealthy, resourceful, free black woman, Anna shared a common history with her own slaves. Perhaps one of them remembered the story like this.
7: I remember my mother's voice. Sometimes... I wake up in the night and think, is she singing? But no, she is not. Maybe it was someone else. The night they came and took us away, I can still see their faces shining and dark in the night. The fires and the screams haunt my sleep. And I wake up, afraid, drenched in sweat. I never saw her again. Sometimes I wonder, will I forget her? Here, I carry. I carry clean clothes up and dirty linens out. I carry breakfast, dinner and supper to the table and the chamber pots to the privy. I take care of ma'am's children and I sing my mother's songs to them. Whatever ma'am says to do, you do makes no difference but you must be careful make sure nothing goes missing or gets broken one day a brooch goes missing and you might not sleep on your back for a week but you don't say anything not here it won't do to feel sorry though my mother used to say it is better to walk than to curse the road I didn't want to come here, but here I am and I am a married woman and soon will have a child of my own and one day we will be free like Ma'am Anna or Miss Sophie. We will have our own home and build a life for our children, but for now I will carry the food to the house and the dirty clothes to the wash. I will not be afraid,
1: and I will always remember my mother. This story is based in part on Anna, as well as Sophie, one of the other girls purchased by Kingsley in 1806. But more importantly, it was a story shared by enslaved African women or their mothers or grandmothers. No one became a slave without violence and misery. The question of how Anna Magigine Jai Kingsley, once a slave herself, could enslave others is hard for our modern minds to grapple with. She didn't enslave other people reluctantly. Instead, she used her wealth and fortitude to fight for the right to do so. Indeed, in her final will written in 1860, the year before the outbreak of the Civil War, she declared her young slaves, Polly, Joe, Elizabeth, and Julia, ages 9 to 17, to be sold, and the profit given to her own children. For some people, Anna's personal story of capture and enslavement make them want to excuse, or at least defend, her actions. Others want to hold her to a higher standard. This paradox is hard to reconcile, and yet we also have to ask, what if her skin had been white, or if she had been male? Would these differences affect our desire To either excuse or condemn her? In the end, nothing negates the fact that Anna Kingsley enslaved her fellow human beings.
0: When you're ready, go back outside and turn to the right. The second door to the kitchen house is just past the stairs on your right. It leads to the kitchen. Our story continues in that room. This rustic room, about 20 feet square, features large wooden beams along the ceiling. To your right, as you enter the room, just beyond waist-high plexiglass barriers, is a large fireplace with a simulated fire with flickering light and the crackling sound of wood burning. An iron kettle filled with imitation onions and potatoes is nearby. A table is set with replicas of food, ham, bread, and fruit. To your left, behind a low barrier, is a corner with a basket of cotton and a roller gin, used to manually pluck seeds from newly-picked cotton bowls. Straight ahead, behind a barrier, is another small room behind this kitchen area, containing barrels, baskets full of cotton, and a spinning wheel. A panel on this barrier describes the makeup of the walls and floor. They're made of tabby and oyster-shell concrete. Tabby was fire-resistant and durable, ideal for a heavily-used area like the kitchen. Note, the edges of the shells here are sharp, so please do not touch the tabby surfaces. A safe, tactile opportunity with tabby will be provided later in the tour.
1: Every day, all day, the rich aroma of freshly cooked meals filled this small room and wafted through the windows. The kitchen boss, or cook, would constantly be in motion, preparing one meal, cleaning up after another. Cooking included more than simply chopping and rolling. Fresh chicken perlo, a stew-like mix of rice and chicken, would require killing, plucking, and dressing the chicken. Enslaved helpers, often children, would fetch pork from the smokehouse, vegetables from the garden, and rice, wheat flour, or cornmeal from the storehouse, then work alongside the kitchen boss from early in the morning till well after dark. In the next room, with the tabby floor, Laundry from the main house and other family dwellings would be washed and mended. A hot, back-breaking chore. It is always hot. Summer
6: or winter. That fire's got to stay lit all night. You can't cook without a good fire, and I am a very good cook. Polo and pork roast. Corn and peas. I'd never heard of squash before, but I cook okra as a little girl fried with a little cornmeal. Today, young Master Charlie wants an orange cake. (laughs) It's work. Hard work. The others, they get Saturday afternoon and Sunday off, but I cook every day for the folks that don't cook for themselves. Mom, Anna, or one of them, tells me who's going to be here and what to fix. And if Master Zephaniah is coming home, there's always something special. I know man Anna is glad to see him come. I expect she gets lonely. I know, I get lonely too. I miss my husband and my baby Hannah. Uh, Years back, when we were at the old place, they were both carried off by Indians during the raids. They came very early in the morning. I was already gone cooking breakfast. She's a pretty little girl, a good girl. Worked right here in the kitchen with me. She would have been a fine cook too, I know. A mother just knows about her own baby. Some say that the Indians just killed everybody they took, but I don't believe that. I won't think like that. I think that maybe she's alive somewhere. Maybe she's free. And maybe she's cooking somewhere too.
1: This story is based in part on any woman who lost a child, yet specifically on old Rose. Rose's daughter was abducted from one of Kingsley's other plantations during a Seminole war raid in 1812. In every instance, enslaved people had no control over their own fate or the fate of their family. The records indicate the Kingsleys and their managers would have been sympathetic to a devastating loss, such as Rose's loss of her child. But it is also clear that such losses wouldn't have led to a lessening of burdens or a loosening of restrictions. However, some behavior was often rewarded with additional privileges.
0: Now we will move to the stable. Please exit through the door you entered to visit the kitchen. Turn to the right and follow the path in front of you about 150 feet. Stop near the tree where the path forks.
1: Barns and stables were a center of activity on any working plantation, and Fort George Island had several. The building on your left was actually a stable. However, it wasn't just a place to shelter horses. Carriages needed to be repaired and horses needed to be saddled so overseers could ride out and inspect the property. Other barns would store the massive bales of Sea Island cotton waiting to be shipped to ports north. Stop near the fork in the path, face the stable, and imagine a series of buildings behind it and to the right. One housed the cane sugar mill that produced the syrup and sugar used on the property. Another was used to grind corn into meal and store flour and rice. Plantations required a wide diversity of skills. Blacksmiths, carpenters, mill workers, sailors, coopers. And most of these jobs were done by enslaved men.
0: The stable is a two-story, tabby-walled structure with a brick extension painted white off to the left. There is one window on the north end of the building, and there are large openings in the center of each section, which allowed access by wagons and other large items. There is also an opening to the outside from the loft area.
1: Picture the men and women, as well as older children, who worked at their assigned task every day except Sunday, always under the eye of the overseers and drivers. Under Kingsley's view of plantation management, Competence, loyalty, and good behavior could earn a man a degree of self-direction.
4: I build everything. Houses, barns, docks, storehouses, fences, furniture. Everything. I first learned to build from my father as he learned from his. Every day I'm told what to do, and since I'm a slave, every day I do it. But from time to time, I hire myself out. Mr. McNeil says I can hire my own time as I see fit and keep what's paid to me unless I need to pay out some help, and I decide who will work with me and who won't. Most days I don't think about needing another man's permission to work or what he can say to me or what he can do. I think about my wife and my children, but some days I do, I think about it a lot. I am a man and a slave, so I do my work save my money, and bide my time. I'm not afraid of Mr. McNeil or Master Kingsley or any other man. But some days, I'm afraid of what I will do if I ever see a man raise a hand to my wife or my children. Because I am a slave, but I'm also a man.
1: This was based in part on a man known as Carpenter Bill. Bill was a skilled craftsman and often hired by local plantation owners. With the money he earned, he eventually purchased his and his family's freedom and remained in the area working for hire. Under Kingsley's view of slavery, intelligent and skilled men and women were to be cultivated and rewarded, often with greater degrees of self-management. This view was not necessarily altruistic. While he did believe that dignity was important to his slaves' happiness and overall satisfaction, He also believed it was a mistake to make an enemy of a gifted man. In other words, a smart but dissatisfied man was more likely to cause trouble, whereas a reasonably satisfied person would advance his own interests. But even if a person was given freedom by an owner or purchased it for themselves, life as a free black person still had dangers and difficulties. The story continues inside the stable.
0: Move ahead 70 feet toward the stable and go inside. Please watch your footing where the rubber path stops and the wooden floor of the stable begins. The interior of the stable is an open area with rows of benches to the left. Feel free to sit on the benches at any time. The 15-foot ceiling has rough-hewn beams. The extension to the left has a sand floor. About 15 feet in and to the right about 10 feet is a huge sugar kettle five feet in diameter. The kettle is covered with a smooth top, but you can feel the rough iron surface along the sides below. On top of the platform is an exhibit panel titled, Cutting Cane and Making Syrup. Pictured on the panel is a drawing of four slaves tending a brick fireplace. The panel states,
9: The sugar produced here would have been sticky and brown. The syrup was usually a golden brown color, similar in consistency to corn syrup.
1: Imagine the rich smell of leather, combined with the not-always-so-sweet smell of horses. In this room, wood, metal, and leather for repairing carriages and wagons would be neatly stacked. Bins of nails would sit on shelves, ready to shoe a sturdy draft or a fine riding horse. Fort George Island was a successful venture for Kingsley, and most of the work would have been completed by his slave laborers. But evidence suggests that additional skilled labor was needed from time to time, and the best candidates were often emancipated slaves. A stable like this, where special tools were kept and specialized work performed, is a likely place for such a man to be.
4: I keep the papers in my pocket. All the time, those papers stay in my pocket. I have been a free man for eight years, and those papers say so. I can read the newspapers, too, and every day seems like there's a new law that says where I can go, a new tax that I can't afford, a new law that I broke not knowing about it. I've been around here a long time. Most folks, white and Negro, they know me, but these new ones don't, and they don't care. I worry for my wife now all the time. Today, Ma'am Anna hired me to shoe a new horse. Old Pedro is busy with Mr. McNeil today, and since I've been taking care of Ma'am Anna's horses for years, just makes sense I do it still. But I worry for my wife and children. They are still owned by Master Kingsley, but she comes in my place every weekend. These new folks don't see no difference between a free man and a black man. Your soul may be free, but your skin is certainly black, and no black man should ever be free. So I keep those papers in my pocket, all the time, in my pocket.
1: On many occasions, Kingsley manumitted slaves as a reward for service. On many other occasions, the records show Kingsley's slaves purchased their own freedom. This story is based in part on Abraham Hanahan and Carpenter Bill, both of whom became free men. Abraham was freed in 1811. The year before, when he was manager of Kingsley's Laurel Grove Plantation, white militia members confiscated guns belonging to Kingsley's slaves. Abraham was sentenced to fifty lashes and a month of hard labor in chains for being insubordinate to the local authorities while verbally defending Kingsley's property. Bill a highly skilled carpenter, continued to work for the family after purchasing his own freedom. Kingsley agreed with the Spanish provision that any slave could purchase their freedom for one half of their appraised value. There is considerable evidence that Kingsley adhered to this promise even after the United States outlawed the freeing of slaves. This also raises difficult questions about why freedmen and women continued to work for those who enslaved them. Two possibilities may have been legal protection and family loyalty. Free blacks needed a white person to speak for them, legally and socially. Under Spanish law, free men and women had some measure of protection and were recognized as free blacks. After governance shifted to the U.S., it rapidly became more and more restrictive to the point where a free black person was required to have a white guardian so they could move about unmolested. Manumission papers would never be far from the former slave's grasp. Under U.S. law, if a free black person committed any offense and was fined, that person could be sold to pay the debt, even if the crime was simply being black and unsupervised. As for loyalty, it wasn't necessarily to the former owner, but rather to one's own family. Abraham's family remained Kingsley property for nearly two decades before he freed them. Bill was able to purchase his own freedom along with his wife and three of his younger children. However, his other two children remained the property of the Kingsley family. The truth remains that the vast majority of enslaved people at Fort George Island never saw freedom and had none of the self-direction given to men like Abraham or Bill. To discover more about the lives of other enslaved men and women on Fort George Island, Move to the garden.
0: Exit the stable through the door you came in. Move along the path to where it forks. Then leave the path and continue forward across the grass. As you approach the garden, you may encounter several benches along the closest side. Please take a seat if you'd like. The grounds in this area are sheltered by tall trees with long strands of Spanish moss dangling from branches. The garden is roughly 100 square feet, bordered by split wood railings. During growing season, the garden is planted with neat rows of crops dominated by cotton plants. You may wish to take this opportunity to touch some of the plants in the garden. A rectangular area, an inset at the center of the fence on this side of the garden, extends about 20 feet into the garden. Go ahead and reach out toward the plants, just beyond the railing, on the right or the left. Note the texture of the plants you encounter.
1: This small garden is just under a tenth of an acre. An enslaved person would be responsible for an area roughly three times this size on any given day. It's planted year-round to show the variety of crops grown on the plantation, but the actual working fields were spread throughout the island. Kingsley's plantations used the task system of labor, as opposed to the gang system most people envision when we think of slavery. Under a gang system, slaves worked from sunup until they were released from their labor for the day, usually sundown. Under the task system, each day the overseer, through the various slave drivers, would assign the day's work to each person, enough to keep the person working from sunrise until about two in the afternoon. The day's work generally involved tending crops, but was assigned based on the needs and plans of the day, clearing land, loading ships, Cleaning cotton, tending animals, any work the plantation needed would be required of the enslaved. Men, women, and older children put in a full day's work. After the task was completed, the rest of the day would be spent tending their own gardens, fishing or hunting. But this was not leisure time. The time was used to make items to sell, to raise additional food to feed their families or sell at markets to earn the precious money to ultimately purchase one's own freedom. In no way should this suggest the task system was an easier or better system of slavery. Kingsley and his overseers believed that Africans were better suited to work in the Florida climate and expected a lot out of them. In Florida's hundred-degree heat and below-freezing winters, on an island where both rattlesnakes and alligators flourished, where disease-carrying mosquitoes were a daily reality, the slaves of the Kingsley Plantation were expected to be content.
10: Today, it plants one quarter of an acre. Yesterday, it was set a mile of fence post. Tomorrow, who knows? But tomorrow will come nonetheless. I start at sunrise. I quit when today's work is done. Then, i work my own piece till dark. But don't work too hard or too fast. One has to think of the others as well as tomorrow. If I finish today's quarter too soon, tomorrow I may be given more work. What if the next day I am sick or hurt? What if the others fall behind or seem slow by my example? I keep an even pace, because tomorrow will be the same. And tomorrow, and tomorrow. Some days are harder, though. I've seen a man whipped like a dog. I've seen with my own eyes a man watch his wife be whipped. Heard her cries. I saw the shame in his face and the anger in his fist as he turned away. I do not know if I could turn away. A man can close his eyes, but who can close their ears? I do not know if the overseer saw what I saw. If he did, he would not have slept well that night. I have no wife, no children, not yet, but I will not bear a lash. I will not be another man's dog."
9: A
1: cornerstone of the Spanish system was that slaves were human beings with souls and intelligence. With that belief, comes the understanding that you could push a man too far and that the natural result of injustice would be escape or vengeance. The evidence of whipping at Fort George Island is rare, but not unheard of. Kingsley owned a young man named Romeo. After Kingsley's death, his nephew, Charles McNeil, inherited Romeo and moved him to the San Jose Plantation. Soon afterwards, he ran away, and the evidence suggests it was because he had been whipped. McNeil offered a $20 reward for the return of his slave, dead or alive. Romeo was eventually returned to the plantation by another Kingsley relative, John Samus, who did so on the condition he would not beat him cruelly. The records show McNeil did not physically punish Romeo, and a few years later, he was a free man. Nevertheless, Kingsley himself stated that slave society could not survive without the constant threat of violence, and for the enslaved man or woman on Kingsley's plantations, the fact that they probably weren't beaten every day in no way lessened the fact that they could have been beaten any day. Of course, Kingsley's view also held warning for the overseers. Just because a man chose not to strike back against an injustice today Didn't mean he wouldn't exact vengeance tomorrow. The daily reality of Fort George Island slave society was a delicate balance between threats and fear, provocation and reaction. The fulcrum of this balance was the overseer. Before Kingsley purchased Fort George Island, his Laurel Grove plantation was run entirely by slave labor, including the manager and overseer. As time moved on, Laws were passed requiring only white overseers. Zephaniah and Anna's firstborn son, George, grew up here and learned to manage the property. When his parents moved to Haiti in 1838, George purchased the property. For a while, an overseer, who had to be white, reported to an owner who was, by legal definition, a Negro. Every evening, managers and overseers would plan the next day's tasks and assign them through the driver. They would then monitor the work in the fields, barns, docks, anywhere a task was being completed, walking or riding horses to each location. White or black, they adhered to Kingsley's method of management.
5: Six acres of cotton, six acres of corn and peas, and four of sweet potatoes. Sixteen acres per negro in the field. But it's the yield per acre that makes money. There's no money in dirt. If there is no rain and the yield is low, that's not their fault, but if the rain is good and the soil is good and the crops are poor, then poor work is to blame. Every day I balance effort against results and reward good work with good favor, though punishment is sometimes necessary to ensure proper behavior. Only the most egregious behavior earns a lash. Insubordinate language or actions cannot be tolerated. Theft or destruction of the master's property is the same. A runaway has stolen property just as if he killed the master's hogs. Sometimes the lash is necessary, but only a stupid and wicked man imposes it unjustly, and I am not a stupid or wicked man. The key to productive labor is satisfaction with his home. Do not interfere with his domestic life. Permit him, if his loyalty and demeanor justify it, to earn his own money and allow him to spend it within proper limits. For his own good, restrict his visits to others, but allow decent neighbors to share in their festivities. In exchange for your generosity, you will be rewarded with happy Negroes and considerable profits.
1: Kingsley's apparently lenient and definitely patronizing view of his enslaved labor force had less to do with compassion and more to do with coercion and profit. The previous description by the overseer was taken almost word for word from Kingsley's treatise promoting his system of slavery. And while there is no evidence of gratuitous beatings that were the realities of many antebellum plantations of the American South, there is no doubt that Kingsley or his kin would use violent and demeaning punishments as they saw fit. Yet the evidence suggests Kingsley's combination of rewards and punishments, possible manumission, And mostly hands off domestic approach was, indeed, effective. High crop yields and very low instances of disturbance support the evidence that just enough satisfaction, just enough stability, and just enough hope for the future could control a person as effectively as the whip. Now we move away from the realm of owners, managers, and overseers, away from Master Zephaniah. Ma'am Anna, and their white relatives and free black children.
0: Please make your way back to the path and turn right. The path will lead you about 60 feet between two tabby columns. Continue through the columns, across the gravel parking lot, and follow the path to the left of the dirt road, which is straight ahead.
1: This point marks the transition between the realm of the free person and that of the enslaved. In the early 1800s, the distinction would have been much, much deeper. To the north, behind you, free men and women, white, black, and mulatto, could plan for their own and their children's futures. They could enjoy their wealth and the opportunities it purchased. They could chart their own destinies. To the south, in front of you, black men, women, and children, whose labor produced the wealth their owners used against them, ended one more day in bondage, and prepared for the next.
0: As you proceed, imagine the view as it was in the early 1800s.
1: The area was entirely open. In fact, the entire island was almost completely bare of trees since it had been cleared for crops. The distant tabby cabins arched in front of you, split by the narrow dirt road. Small garden plots filled the area around and behind them. In the late afternoon, smoke rose from each chimney as evening meals were prepared. Beyond the cabins, fields of cotton, corn, and peas stretched into the distance.
0: Today, the curving path to the slave cabins winds through a wooded area shaded by tall oak trees, towering up to 100 feet.
1: While everything on a plantation belonged to the owner... This small part of Fort George Island was the realm of the slave. Each family had their own garden of about a quarter acre. Starting at dawn, the area would be mostly deserted while the people completed their assigned daily tasks, usually an eight- to ten-hour day depending on how much and how fast the person worked. In the late afternoon, these quarters would come to life as men and women walked a similar path to their own home. House slaves came from the north, barn and dock workers from the northeast. From the south, men, women, and children would return from the fields.
2: My hands bleed today from picking seeds and bogs out of cotton, and my back hurts, and my feet hurt, and my shoulders ache, ache, ache. But I'm going home now. Out from beneath the overseer's eyes and ears, I can hear our songs. And my babies are here, I want to see my babies. Sometimes I cry because they were born into slavery, but I have to smile, too. They are my beautiful babies, and I just know, in my heart, I know they won't be low forever. They will feel the sweet breath of freedom one day. My husband is from the Susu tribe in the west. And I was born near the Pongo River in Guinea. Next to us live two from Senegal, husband and wife. I love her like a sister. The driver is Ibo from the Niger River. His wife is from Nukalabar. I do not recognize their songs, but the rhythm reaches inside me and soothes my heart. Tomorrow my body will ache again. I will clean bugs and seeds from another 20 pounds of cotton. But tonight, I will hear their music and think of my home.
1: Today, one can only imagine the rich mix of languages and cultures that melded together here. According to the records available and Kingsley's own indication, most of the enslaved adult men and women on his plantations, including Fort George Island, were from many different places in Africa. This cultural diversity ranged from what is today Senegal, on the East African coast, to Guinea, on the West. By every account, the Kingsley family and overseers took a hands-off approach to the languages and customs practiced by their slaves. The semicircular layout, unique from all other plantation ruins, is reminiscent of Anna Kingsley's Wolof community layout. While the design may or may not have been created on purpose, it certainly helped create a sense of community in this unique place. Here, a rich culture was created in the pressure cooker of enslavement. The music, language and other cultural treasures that survive to this day evolved in spite of, not because of, horrific circumstances. As one looks around today, in the peaceful environment of a national park, it's easy to miss the reality of an enslaved person's existence. The Kingsley slave quarters were certainly better built than most other slave dwellings of the time. The tabby construction, fireplaces, windows, and the relatively generous amount of space. Yes, the people who lived here created a community all their own. And yet, every moment of every day, Their minds and bodies were the property of another, kept in this degraded state to produce wealth.
0: Each cabin was a two room structure with a gabled wooden roof and a chimney. Today, most of the cabin's roofs no longer exist. Continue moving about halfway down the row of cabins until you hear the story resume. Then choose a cabin to your left and step inside.
1: Step inside one of these ruins. See the tabby walls and the ravages of time. And then remember that for more than a hundred years, this wasn't a slave dwelling. It was someone's home.
0: All that is left of most of the cabins are the tabby walls, most of them not full height, and a brick fireplace. The floor is dirt. The roof is gone. All of the cabins look alike. Each is about 20 by 20 feet square.
1: Each small cabin housed a family and was their only private place. The main room held a few chairs and a table, along with the family's supply of food for the week. The smaller room would be used for sleeping and storing the family's few possessions. Above, a steep-pitched roof made room for a sleeping loft. In this tiny space, a husband, wife, and their children made a home. But here the rich aroma of the evening meal would be mixed with the odors of sweat and dirt.
4: I live in this house with my wife and my children. Three so far, two boys and a girl. There will be more. I fix machines and other equipment and build whatever is needed and charge my wage. Mr. McNeil don't have to allow that, but he does. My wife howls out to launder and we sell our extra vegetables. I will buy all our freedom, provided the masses remain true to their word, and we don't get sold before I've saved enough. This house will never be my home, and I will have enough. I swear I will. The law's changing, though. A black man has to be careful and have the trust of a white man who will speak on his behalf, who will look after his interest, his family. I have a gun in this house have one right here. I use it to keep birds and animals out of the field and sometimes to haunt. If I use it against the master, the world will be against me. But if I use it to defend what's his, then I will have at least one ally in the world. I will defend what is mine in my own way, my family, my money, my future."
1: The fact that Zephaniah Kingsley permitted his slaves to be armed is well documented, yet it flies in the face of the commonly held belief that all slaves were forbidden firearms. Nonetheless, it's consistent with Kingsley's views. The notion of the unarmed slave was fully part of the two-caste, race-based system of the United States, but not necessarily true of the three-caste Spanish system. This surprising fact goes directly to the question... Why wouldn't an armed slave revolt? Some have proposed that slaves were either satisfied with their lot or too afraid, while others have promoted the equally unlikely idea that they were incapable of planning or carrying out insurrection. A more likely theory is that intelligent people made rational choices. Enslaved men and women weighed the risks of violent revolt against the likelihood of success and sought other paths to freedom. To discover one of the most complex and troubling of those paths, continue moving down the arc of the cabins until you reach the larger, restored cabin next to the road, the slave driver's quarters. On your way, think about the families, the group of human beings, who made a community in this very spot. Continue moving past the slave's quarters to the driver's house. On your way, Take a look around and picture the community, perhaps in the evening. Around you, people are tending to their own crops and children, preparing their own meals. Now turn your attention to the driver's home, the larger building next to the road. Pause outside when you get there.
0: Before visiting the slave driver's cabin, please walk to your right, about 20 feet. You'll find an exhibit panel titled Preserving the Past, which reads,
9: Constructed nearly 200 years ago, these cabins were home to enslaved people. Following emancipation, former slaves lived here and worked the land. Slowly, individuals and families moved away, leaving the buildings to fall into ruin. The cabins were built largely from tabby. Tabby was a labor-intensive concrete made from oyster shells, sand, and water. It was poured into forms, layer by layer, until it became the buildings in front of you.
0: At the right of the panel is a large block of modern tabby like that which composed the cabins. The panel asks us to touch this modern tabby and not the fragile historic tabby. Now, cross this grassy area back to the slave driver's cabin.
1: This is one of four drivers' houses in the slave quarters, two on either side of the road, two at the end of each arc. Their placement is symbolic and practical. Drivers woke their fellow slaves up before dawn to start work, informed the overseer if someone was sick or injured, and made sure the work assignments were carried out well. They were the voice between the enslaved and the free. Imagine this area, full of activity, men, women, and children, all bearing the indignant burden of enslavement, preparing evening meals, talking and laughing. But like in any close community... Also arguing and quarreling.
3: Sometimes they do not understand. They want to know why. And what can I tell them? Because this is your fate? Because the world is what it is? Because you will make the best and you will do your best. And you will not endanger our community. If one brings trouble to himself, he brings trouble to all. It is my responsibility to keep the community at peace. Entrusted by the overseer to manage the Negroes by day, and by the Negroes to manage the quarters by night. It is not a load that a man bears lightly. I remember being a new Negro myself stolen from my home and taken to a strange land. In Africa, my father was a respected man, a traitor, and a warrior. We captured and sold our enemies for profit and for war. I am now an ocean away from that life, and I will never see my father again. But I am a respected man, sometimes a feared man, and one day I may once again be a free
9: man.
1: It took a special combination of skill and personality to manage the complicated relationships of this diverse and somewhat autonomous community. In our modern minds, the role of the Negro slave driver is one of the most controversial and difficult to understand in slave society. While laborers could be forced to work under threat of violence, it is highly unlikely that someone could force a man to have leadership skills. The slave driver was the plantation's enforcer, not only making sure work was completed, but also upholding the rules of slave society. Most likely, He learned that complex mix of skills and personality through his own upbringing in Africa or from other father figures in the New World. Self-interest probably played a significant role in ensuring the driver's family stability as well. Respect from the overseer and plantation masters made sale or separation less likely. A slightly larger dwelling, along with increased privileges, made being an effective driver a reasonable goal. Ultimately, Kingsley freed several of his drivers. Some of them continued to conduct business with the plantation, and one eventually became Kingsley's father-in-law. Abraham Hanahan belonged to Zephaniah's father and was later inherited by Zephaniah. He was a driver and eventually a manager of at least one of Kingsley's plantations. Hanahan's daughter, Flora, became one of Kingsley's four wives. While being a driver was not a promise of future freedom, there were enough successful examples to give hope. Yet remember, an elevated position was no guarantee of security.
0: Please step up over the threshold as you go inside the driver's cabin. Have a seat if you like, a bench is on your left as you enter the cabin.
1: Think about being in the most elevated position an enslaved person could have. A driver, or a member of the driver's family.
0: This space is somewhat larger than the other slave cabins. Limestone plaster covers the tabby walls, and a gabled wood roof is overhead. This room has a brick fireplace to the left. A smaller room is to the right. The dirt floor has bits of oyster shell mixed in.
1: Drivers on Kingsley Plantations were generally older and more experienced in their thirties or forties. Keeping with Kingsley's belief that slaves with stable families were happier, all of his slave drivers had wives and usually several children. However, no status, no extra privileges, no opportunity to sing or tell stories could protect anyone from their greatest fear. Later tonight, my husband says, there will be music.
7: And if everyone isn't too tired, dancing, and, of course, stories. It takes time for the new ones to learn our language so they can tell their own story. Swahili, Susu, Wolof, Spanish, English, French, but the rhythm And the music are ours, and the spirits watch over us all when we laugh and when we cry. The man, three doors down, lost his daughter today. She married last year and had a child, and all three were sold. If they remain close by, perhaps, he will see them again. If they were sold to the north, then there is no hope. The lash is easier to bear than the loss of a child. Will her baby ever hear her father's stories? My mother used to say, until the lion has his own storyteller, the hunter will always have the best part. We will add her story to our own, and we will tell her story to our children, and she will never be
1: forgotten. Few stories of the men and women sold from Kingsley's plantations survive to be retold. This one is based partly on Carpenter Bill's daughter, Lavinia. Along with her husband and child, they were sold on the auction block. The auction took place after Zephaniah Kingsley's death, and well after her father was a free man. But he could not afford the price of three people, and he watched, helpless, as she and her husband and his grandchild were led away. It's true that Kingsley and his managers believed that keeping families together was better for a slave's general well-being, and thus better for business. That said, Families were continually split by transferring individuals between plantations and when needed to raise cash. In some cases, provisions were made in wills that families would be kept together. But this directive was only good for one sale. The next owner, who may not have subscribed to Kingsley's philosophy, could simply separate the family at a later time. The most effective weapon in the slave owner's possession, more terrifying than the lash, more powerful than any material incentive, was human love and devotion. Take your time in the driver's house. Today, it is clean and airy, thanks to a commitment to preserve the building. But take a moment and remember the people who lived here, and preserve who they were. When you're ready, the final section of our tour begins as you travel back up the road, back toward the main house. The final audio section will begin playing about halfway up the road.
0: When you leave the driver's cabin, move to your left about 15 feet, then turn right on the dirt road. Remember to step up over the threshold as you exit.
1: Kingsley Plantation isn't a story of buildings or artifacts. It's a story of people, who they were, how they lived, what brought them together, and what kept them separate. In a slave society, even under Kingsley's views, some of these people simply did not matter. Their bodies and souls were expendable, their dreams and desires, meaningless. All that mattered was their labor and the immense wealth they produced. The stories we've shared today are based on real events, but more importantly, on real people.
3: Jose,
2: Panda. Mira.
1: Mothers and fathers. Frank. Husbands and wives. Hannah. Sons and daughters.
10: Lavinia.
2: Alonzo, Marianne, with names, hopes, and humanity.
1: They are the lions. We are their storyteller. Some sought and found freedom, some enslaved others. But many whose names have been lost did not leave this plantation. Their bones still reside in the soil of Fort George Island, their final resting place unmarked and unremembered. As you walk back along the road through the Kingsley Plantation, reflect on the past they walked, the air they breathed, the burden they carried. It is our hope through your visit here today, you hear their voices, and remember their stories. We also hope you will remember the stories of those who enslaved their fellow human beings for what they still teach us today. In spite of Zephaniah Kingsley's belief that one could balance evils judiciously, dignity and freedom are the birthright of all people.
3: Jenny.
6: Victorine. Mike, Yamba,
4: Oliver, Jeffrey, Thomas, Prince, Tamba, Julia,
6: Paul, Annie,
4: Becca, Hannibal, Peggy, Conta, Julia,
10: Monroe,
6: Jeffrey,
4: Thomas, Victorine, Sylvia, Tomasa, Rose, Julia, Jack, and
7: Becca, Nanny, Patty, Patty, Betsy, Hannibal, John, Emma, Rose.
0: Proceed along the dirt road to a rubber path that stretches on an angle to the left. This path will lead you back to the ramp just outside the gift shop and the desk where you received your audio player. Please return the player to the ranger at the desk.
3: Jenny.
6: Victorine. Mike. Yamba.
4: Oliver, Jeffrey. Thomas. Prince. Tamba. Julia,
6: Control. Annie,
4: Becca, Hannibal, Peggy,
10: Conta, Julia, Monroe, Patricia.
4: Jeffrey, Thomas, Victorine, Sylvia, Tomasa, Rose, Julia, Jack.
7: And Becca, Nanny, Patty, Betsy,
2: Hannibal, John,
7: Emma, Rose.